Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. I'd like to welcome all of you to our class today because now on this kind of tail end of the group learning program, we're going to be sharing breathing mindfulness meditation to help you learn from the very beginning. In the very beginning of the group learning program, over seven months ago, I did a four-part series on breathing mindfulness meditation, and I did a four-part series on loving-kindness meditation. And then since that time, we've just been rotating every Wednesday between breathing mindfulness and loving-kindness meditation. Well, here towards the end of this program, what I would like to do is be sure that students have the ability to be reminded of basically how to develop a breathing mindfulness meditation practice. And then next Wednesday, we'll do the same thing with loving kindness so that you'll be able to learn once again what it is that I shared seven months ago and then be able to ask any and all questions you have related to breathing mindfulness meditation today and then next week, loving kindness meditation. That way you can fully build up your practice. So if you're learning with me for the first time, this is an excellent time for you to learn because you can actually develop your understanding of breathing mindfulness meditation and really start with a really full teaching on what this is. So I'd like to welcome all of you and as we go you're welcome to ask questions through Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom. All you need to do is put your questions into the comment section. Our moderator Miranda will see that and be able to be sure your question gets asked during the class. If you're in Zoom, you can electronically raise your hand and ask any questions or follow-up questions directly. So I'm going to go ahead and get started and share some things with you guys. As I've shared at many times as students learn with me, it's important that you don't believe anything that I share. It's important that you don't believe anything that the Buddha shared either. Any books or any discourses that anybody shares, it's important to not believe these things, but instead to learn, reflect, and practice. Through that learning, you're asking questions, seeking clarification, attempting to understand what it is the teacher's communicating. Through your reflection, you're working to independently verify what's being shared through confirming it in the real world. And then when you're practicing the teaching and actually implementing it into your daily life, you should be observing improvements to the condition of the mind based on implementing this particular teaching and practice. And that's what I would encourage you to do with all aspects of everything that I share, including meditation. So because I'm not interested in any students believing anything that I share, then what I do here at the beginning of teaching you breathing mindfulness meditation is share with you what the Buddha 
said in a few of his teachings related to meditation so that you don't even believe that the Buddha actually taught meditation. As part of this book series, The Words of the Buddha, The Path to Enlightenment, Revealing the Hidden, there's one specific book out of the 13 book series that is dedicated to the teachings of the Buddha on breathing mindfulness meditation. It's volume seven. And you can see that on our website, buddhadailywisdom.com. You can either download it, download it and print it or order a printed copy because there you can see with 100% certainty that the Buddha absolutely taught breathing mindfulness meditation. So here in this class, I'm just bringing in a few of his words to help you get started to see that the Buddha did indeed teach meditation and you don't need to believe anybody that he taught it or he didn't teach it, but you can see it in his own words. And then the more you understand his words around meditation, particularly that volume seven, then you'll see more and more clearly exactly what he taught and what he didn't teach about meditation. Because now today, 2,500 years after his death, there's all these various meditations that are being taught all over the world but these are invented by people who aren't a Buddha. A Buddha has unique qualities that allow them to discover the teachings that lead to enlightenment. And when we start changing a Buddha's teachings, then the path to enlightenment gets more and more murky. It gets more and more diluted. So by us learning exactly what the Buddha taught through his own words and then not believing it, but learning, reflecting to independently verify and then practice. And when you see the condition of the mind improving, then you know you're learning exactly what the true path to enlightenment is as taught by a Buddha because you studied his words, you didn't believe them, you reflected on them, independently verified them, and then you practice them and you see that they actually work to improve the condition of the mind. So here, let me just share with you a few of the words that the Buddha shared around meditation just to help you build confidence that he even taught something called meditation. Here he says, meditate monks, do not be complacent, lest you regret it later. This is my instruction to you. So one aspect of breathing mindfulness meditation is you're cultivating mindfulness, you're cultivating concentration, and you're eliminating craving, desire, attachment. Craving desire attachment or that mental longing and strong eagerness is the cause of discontentedness. So anger, sadness, frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fear, boredom, loneliness, shyness, jealousy, resentment, displeasure, despair, misery, grief, all of these discontent feelings and others are caused by craving desire attachment. So here by practicing breathing mindfulness meditation, you're doing the one primary practice that helps you to eliminate craving desire attachment, which thus causes discontentedness. So if you were complacent in your meditation practice, then you would regret it later when the mind is angered and frustrated and irritated or feeling guilt or shame or fear, or any of these other discontent feelings. So the Buddha never motivates people through guilt, shame, or fear. Instead, he's kind of helping you to see that you're going to regret having not meditated when your mind is discontent later. So that's what this one particular statement is all about. This next one where he says a pot without a stand is easy to tip over. The pot is like a flower pot and then the stand, you know, if you don't have a stand, it's easy to tip over the flower pot. Well, the pot is the mind and your stand is the meditation practice. 
So a mind without a meditation practice is easy to tip over. So it's easy to become discontent. It's easy to become angered and frustrated and irritated when you don't have a meditation practice. It's easy for this mind to become uncalm and shaken up. So the more that you meditate and you develop your practice, refine it based on what the Buddha taught, then your stand gets wider and wider and wider. And now the pot gets more and more stable or the mind gets more and more stable and steady in daily life where it won't be shaken up by the various things that are happening in the world. You won't experience the sadness and anger and frustration, all those other discontent feelings when you develop your meditation practice along with all the other teachings. So a mind without a meditation practice is easy to become discontent. That's what he's saying here. A pot without a stand is easy to tip over. This next part of his discourse is essentially pointing to how important breathing mindfulness meditation is. So let me read that for you so you can see where he's pointing to it as a primary aspect of your training. Monks, there is one thing that when developed and cultivated leads exclusively to liberation, to freedom from strong feelings, to elimination, to peace, to direct knowledge, experience to enlightenment, to nibbana. What is that one thing? Mindfulness of breathing, breathing mindfulness meditation. That is that one thing that when developed and cultivated leads exclusively to liberation, to freedom from strong feelings, to elimination, to peace, to direct knowledge or experience, to enlightenment, to nibbana. So the Buddha here is sharing how breathing mindfulness meditation leads to peace. It leads to enlightenment because breathing mindfulness meditation is what eliminates craving, desire, attachment. An enlightened mind is peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy permanently, no longer experiencing any discontentedness whatsoever. So by employing breathing mindfulness meditation to eliminate craving, desire, attachment, then you're eliminating discontent feelings thus moving the mind to being peaceful and calm and serene, joyful, this enlightened mental state. So here in this teaching, he's not saying that meditation is the only thing you need. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that this particular technique leads to enlightenment. It's a high priority. He points to it at many points in his teachings. So this particular teaching, while I'm sharing with you and helping you understand it, by learning the totality of the Buddhist teachings, you can take something like this and put it into a frame of reference with all of his other teachings. But if somebody were to just look at this teaching only, they might think that all they need is meditation in order to get to enlightenment. You wouldn't be able to meditate your way to enlightenment. You need other teachings as well besides meditation. But you also wouldn't be able to get to enlightenment without meditation either. One of the biggest myths in the Buddhist communities is that the Buddha sat under a tree, he meditated, and instantly got to enlightenment. This actually isn't true. If you look at his teachings and what he shares, he talks about how it's gradual training, gradual practice that leads to gradual progress. And you know that this is true too because anything you've ever learned has been exactly the same. When you learned English, 
to speak or read or write in English. It's been gradual training, gradual practice, and gradual progress. And whatever job you perform, whatever occupation you have, it was gradual training, gradual practice, and gradual progress. So the Buddha explains that getting to enlightenment is exactly the same. In meditation, there's an accumulation of benefits as you learn and you practice over a consistent long-term period. So if you're meditating at the very beginning and you find that you have lots of thoughts and the mind is bombarded by thoughts, sometimes people feel, I'm no good at meditation, I'm going to give up on this. But the fact that you have a bombardment of thoughts in the mind is exactly the reason why to meditate. If someone is expecting to be an expert in meditation from the very beginning, this would be the ego, right? This would be having an expectation. And this is impossible to be an expert at meditation when you first start. So it's going to take many weeks and months for you to build up your practice. But slowly but surely, as you have gradual training, gradual practice, and gradual progress, you'll be able to see the growth and improvement to the condition of the mind as your practice builds. So let me share with you some very basic things related to meditation in order to help you start to build your understanding of meditation now that you see that the Buddha actually taught meditation. These are what I call meditation basics. First, let's just get clear on a definition of what meditation is because not everybody agrees on a certain definition of meditation. So I'm not going to assume that your definition and your understanding of meditation is the same as mine. But since you've come to learn, let me share with you how I define meditation and how I teach it and how I talk about it so that for the rest of the training that you decide to learn with me, you understand what I mean when I say the word meditation. Meditation is a technique to actively train the mind during dedicated, independent, purposeful training sessions to eliminate unwholesome qualities of the mind and or cultivate wholesome qualities of the mind in the positions of seated, lying, standing, or walking. So this is dedicated, independent, purposeful training session. You're actively training the mind to eliminate certain unwholesome qualities and arise certain wholesome qualities. And I'm going to go through today and show you the four types of meditations that are taught as part of these teachings to help you see exactly what you're eliminating and exactly what you're cultivating, because that's the why behind your meditation. If you were just to meditate and learn a technique and you didn't understand the why, it doesn't matter that you understand the how. You need to learn the how and the why as well. If you understand the why you're meditating, then you can actually accomplish the goals. So it's important to understand that meditation is not exercise, walking the dog, gardening, driving, things like this. If we thought that those things were meditation and all we ever did was walked our dog or we gardened or we drove or we exercised and we never did what I'm sharing here, which is this active, independent, purposeful training session where you're dedicated to eliminating unwholesome qualities and arising wholesome qualities, then if you only did exercise, walking the dog, gardening and driving, and you didn't do this other work that you need to do, you wouldn't be able to get to enlightenment. So it's only when you're understanding what meditation is and you're actively cultivating wholesome qualities and eliminating unwholesome qualities that you're actually able to move the mind to enlightenment. 
because what's hindering the mind from experiencing enlightenment is that it has certain pollutants in the mind. This is described as craving, anger, and ignorance. These are the three unwholesome roots or the three fires, also referred to as the three poisons. This is a high-level description of what's keeping the mind trapped in the unenlightened state. So if you were just walking the dog, you're not going to be eliminating these poisons. It's in meditation that you're working to eliminate these poisons and also things that you're doing outside of meditation too, based on the Eightfold Path. So this definition of meditation, I feel very much represents what it is that the Buddha taught and how to move the mind to the enlightened mental state through the techniques of meditation that he taught. It's important to have a meditation teacher as part of your development of your life practice in your meditation techniques. If you have a meditation teacher, you'll have somebody that you can reach out to, you can ask for help, you can seek clarification and guidance. Whereas if you didn't have that, it would be very challenging for you to be able to make progress on the path. By having a meditation teacher, then you can reach out to this person as you have challenges, as you have struggles, as you have difficulties. And as you ask questions, if what you get back from me or whatever teacher you decide to become your teacher, if what you get back is that's normal, keep going, that can build confidence in your mind and you can continue forward in your meditation practice. But if you had nobody to seek help with, you can find yourself really struggling. I've had people that have contacted me that have tried to do meditation through YouTube videos and books and stuff like this. And they did this for a couple of years and they worked their mind into really problematic and really difficult times. One particular case, there's a doctor who was practicing on their own and they worked themselves into a point where their mind was obsessive and they had extreme depression, even to the point of having suicidal thoughts continuously, and they weren't even able to work anymore. So this was an educated person who was a doctor, but they weren't able to work for, I think, a couple of years based on having worked the mind into this problematic situation. But eventually they reached out to me, I helped them over multiple months, and I just happened to be around that person this past summer when I was traveling, they came to see me and they thanked me for all the teachings that helped to get them out of that problematic situation because now they're back to work, they're feeling lovely again, they feel very joyful about the life that they're leading, and they were able to resolve all of those problems. But for a period of time, they were in a very difficult situation because they didn't have anybody to reach out to to get help from. So a meditation teacher is very important, even though oftentimes we're taught to be very independent and do things on our own. That's true as part of these teachings. You need to consider this an independent practice where you're doing the work. But having a guide to reach out to, having a teacher to reach out to and receive guidance and resources to help you is utterly important. So always maintain that independence that it's your independent journey because then you'll be motivated and encouraged to do the work. But be sure you have a teacher that you can reach out to and get help. Even if what you get back is that's completely normal, keep going because you're going to experience all kinds of different things as you start awakening the mind through meditation. And you'd like to have somebody who's further along on the path than you, potentially even enlightened, so that you can reach out to this person to get help as you need it. There's four positions that the Buddha taught in order to meditate. 
And these four positions are important because you wouldn't be able to just use one position for the rest of your life. That would be permanence. But we understand the universal truth of impermanence that individuals are gonna need these different positions at different times. So I'm gonna share with you these four positions and how I use them and how I observe that they actually work for me. And then you don't believe what I say. Instead, you can learn this and you can receive it as guidance. But then in your practice, as you're practicing these different positions, then you decide how these different positions work for you or don't work for you. In each situation, you'll be able to observe that seated position works for one type of situations or two or three or walking works in these other situations. So let me share with you how I use these positions and then that can help inform you. But then you work with these four positions and figure out how they work best for you. So seated position for me is like my go-to position. I probably use this 80, 90% of the time. And for me, that's what I do. But other people might use another position as their go-to position. This one, I feel that this is the most comfortable. It's the most accommodating. It's the easiest to use. I can do it sitting in a chair. I can do it sitting on the floor. I can do it sitting at a bus stop. I can do it sitting in a waiting room somewhere. I can do it many different places because it's very versatile. But sometimes in the seated position, you might notice that your body is painful. You might notice even with shifting around a bit that your knees or your ankles or your hips or your back or something like that is painful. And that's where I use lying position. Whereas if the body is uncomfortable in the seated position, I will lie and do meditation. There's even been situations where I've been in a hospital hooked up to an IV and I was unable to sit because my lower body was damaged from a motorbike accident. So I was able to do lying meditation in the hospital bed because I wasn't attached to the seated position. The mind was completely comfortable with adapting and doing lying position. So lying is really good for me when there's pain in the body or I'm unable to do seated position. But I need to be really observant of the mind in lying position because oftentimes the mind has a tendency to fall asleep during the lying position. So if I observe that, that's where the standing position comes in. The standing position is really good if the mind is falling asleep. I will stand up. Or if the body is uncomfortable in either the seated or the lying position, their standing position. I also use standing position in situations where if I'm waiting in line and I know it's like a 20 minute line or a 30 minute line or if I'm standing at a bus stop, I might try to get five minutes, 10 minutes, 20 minutes worth of meditation in just standing there in line and you can use it for that as well. Walking position is really helpful in situations where you're either seated or lying and the mind's falling asleep. You can do walking position. Or if the mind is overactive or there's lots of energy in the mind and the last thing you're thinking about is sitting in one spot, you can use walking position to kind of get some of that energy out as a standalone meditation or you can rotate between walking and seated or walking and lying. You don't need to stay in the exact same position all the way through your meditation session. You can actually switch positions and this will help you to extend your meditation sessions. So I've used walking as a standalone meditation session, but I've also used it in combination with these other positions in order to extend the meditation where I've maybe been walking for a while and then I go sit 
and I get more benefit out of the seated meditation because the mind has gotten out all the energy or the anxiety or any kind of stress that's going on in the mind. Or if I'm feeling pain in the seated or lying or standing position, I can do walking to kind of get the body moving. So these are the different positions and these are how I've used them. But remember, you should be sure that you use them in the way that you would like to use them and observe in what situations they work really well for you and in what situations they don't work well for you. So this will really help you. Let me pause here and see if you guys have any questions on anything I've shared so far. Before I share some additional content, you can ask questions through Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, or you can electronically raise your hand and ask any questions or follow-up questions directly. Um, yes, sir. I see Tommy has his hand raised. Let's go to him for his question. Thank you, Miranda. Uh, yes, Teacher David, a uh, question for you. Uh, part of the teaching is to stay on the breath. Uh, to, to to have your mind on the breath when to be in the present moment by moment by being on the breath or observing the breath um, is it also acceptable to be in the present moment if you if you're if you're there meditating and you feel your heartbeat I, f I feel my heart beating or or uh, I hear something outside to I'm still in the present moment but I'm not concentrating on 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 one item for example does that does that work I've never tried to focus on the heartbeat. I've always focused on the breath because it's a consistent ongoing activity that I can monitor with the mind. I can fixate the mind on the breath and then I can regulate the breath either slower or faster in order to slow down the mind. With the heart, you can't do that. It's just doing its own thing. You can't control it. So at one time when the mind was overactive, I noticed that I was breathing kind of shallow and I was breathing rather quickly. So all I needed to do is learn to slow down the breath. And by slowing down the breath with the mind fixated on the breath, I was able to slow down the mind. So the Buddha and myself, I would suggest focusing on the breath. That's where you're going to find the most benefits. Okay, so so no, I just use the the heartbeat for example, but but I'm in the, being in the present, but being aware of of, uh, of present, things in the present, not having the mind go off with thoughts of uh, the future, or the past, or what what you're going to do or whatever. So being in the present with with uh, some of the sixth sensory, because the sixth sensory, uh, you know, the eye, hearing or or nose smelling or breathing. Six sensory things. I guess that's my point. Or is it? Or is the the practices to, to concentrate to focus the concentration on to the breath on to one one uh, thing like the breath. Yeah, you would like to concentrate on the breath. That's why the Buddha calls it mindfulness of breathing. Right? You really need to okay. be dedicated to the breath because the breath you can control more. You can control the mind that way. You can also more readily get the mind into the present moment. With the sound of the air coming into the nose, it's in the head. You know, you can feel it in the skull and the mind is right there to be able to fixate on it. This is going to produce much more benefits for you. Thank you, sir. Mm -hmm. You're welcome. Yes, sir. Um, there is a widespread misconception that when we're meditating, if we experience pain in the body, that we should, I guess the best way to put it is meditate through that, not move, try to not pay attention to it, and just focus on the breath and meditate through that pain. 
why does this why do you think this meditation or i'm sorry <laughs> this conception exists sir yeah this was a similar misunderstanding that existed during the lifetime of the buddha because when he first left the palace you know he was hanging himself upside down from trees he was piercing himself with metal implements he was laying on beds of nails he was starving himself this was all guidance from the teachers at the time that he thought that you know he would take up training with these teachers but it didn't lead to improvement to the condition of the mind he talks about this so what people tend to think when they're not studying the true words of the buddha to see what he actually taught then what they end up doing is they kind of go to their own devices and people think that by causing pain to the physical body that you can overcome that pain through the mind. But this is actually taking the mind in a whole different direction because while you're sitting there in pain, the mind is just feeling pain, 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 pain. Even an enlightened being is going to experience physical pain. You can't overcome physical pain. You can overcome the mental anguish associated with the physical pain so that the physical pain isn't intensified. An enlightened being won't feel the intensity of physical pain that an unenlightened being does because their mind has been trained so they don't feel the mental anguish, but they still feel a little bit of physical pain. So it's there to help us to know that something's wrong. So even an enlightened being, if they're standing too close to a fire, they're gonna feel the heat and that tells the mind, take some action and move away from that fire. Well, if we're in meditation thinking that we're going to eliminate the discontentedness of mind by causing harm to the physical body, this is just a misunderstanding. It's part of the ignorance or the unknowing of true reality. So if we get away from that and we realize that sitting there in pain isn't going to allow you to eliminate and cultivate these unwholesome qualities and wholesome qualities. The mind's just gonna be sitting there feeling pain, 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 pain over and over and over again. Meanwhile, the physical body is being damaged by this. So that pain is there to tell the mind, hey, something's wrong with your knee, take action. And if we don't take action, this is not wise because we're not paying attention to the physical body. So when we understand the life story of the Buddha and what he experienced and what he taught through his own words in the Pali Canon, then we can learn from the challenges and struggles that he faced and how he overcame those. But if somebody's not studying directly with the words of the Buddha, they're not going to understand these things and they may be misguided in thinking that pain in the physical body is what you need to breathe through as part of meditation. I don't agree with this, and I would suggest people to adjust their physical body and adjust their positioning so that that pain isn't there any longer. Because that's the body's way of telling the mind, hey, something's wrong, take action here. Yes, thank you, sir. Mm -hmm. uh, it does not appear that there are any other questions at this time. Okay, so let's look at the four different types of meditation that I share. And these are connected directly to the Buddha's teachings because if you look at what he taught related to meditation, you can see how each of these four map into the meditation and the goals and accomplishments that he shared to accomplish as part of your practice as well. 
The primary form of meditation that he taught is breathing mindfulness meditation. And this is eliminating craving, desire, attachment, that mental longing and strong eagerness. And it's cultivating mindfulness or awareness of mind, specifically the four foundations of mindfulness, which I've shared in other classes. And it also helps you to cultivate concentration or singleness of mind. The way that you're doing this is by focusing on the breath. This is the single object that you're focusing on the breath during meditation. So you get the mind trained to just focus on one thing at a time. Because what the mind wants to do is it wants to bounce around from thing to thing to thing to thing to thing. And oftentimes people even train their mind to do this through multitasking, which would be unwise because then you're just perpetuating the problem of the mind bouncing around from thing to thing to thing to thing. But what you would like to do is train the mind to do just one thing at a time, do it really well, bring forth your full wisdom and be sure that you're applying your wisdom to whatever it is that you're facing. And the way that you do that in daily life is you first exercise the mind in meditation to be able to focus on the breath as the single object. And that's practicing singleness of mind to exercise the mind to build this concentration so that then in daily life, rather than talking on the phone, watching TV and eating a sandwich, you just do one thing at a time, just talk on the phone have a really good quality conversation. And then when you're done, if you're gonna watch TV, watch TV and take that in. Or if you're gonna eat, eat. So just do one thing at a time and you'll find that you're actually more successful that way. And this is how you arise concentration or singleness of mind in your life is through breathing mindfulness meditation and practicing singleness of mind in daily life. You're also developing awareness of mind or mindfulness in meditation because when you're in meditation and you're focused on the breath, when the mind moves off the breath, the mind becomes aware of that. You catch that sooner and sooner and sooner. When you first start practicing breathing mindfulness meditation, you're not aware of the mind moving off the breath. You might be one minute, two minutes, three minutes, four minutes, and then you realize, oh my goodness, I'm meditating bring the mind back over here. But as you accumulate the benefits over gradual training and gradual practice, you see this gradual progress where you can more and more readily catch the mind that it's off the breath and do that sooner and sooner. And this is building your awareness of mind. And specifically, you're building those four foundations of mindfulness where you're aware of the bodily sensations, you're aware of the feelings, you're aware of the condition of mind, and you're aware of mental objects. This is part of the Eightfold Path under Right Mindfulness, and I teach this in other classes. And then as you're observing the breath, building this concentration, you're developing mindfulness and this awareness of mind, and you see the mind has moved off the breath, then you cut that off and let it go and bring the mind back. That's cutting off the mind's longing and yearning. So you're building in this discipline and this control of the mind in meditation that over a consistent long-term period of time in meditation, you're exercising the mind to be able to more and more readily control it and bring it back and bring it back and bring it back and bring it back. So in one meditation session, you might cut off and let go 20, 30, 50 times some thought and bring the mind back. And this is giving you the control and the discipline and the ability, the skill to be able to do this in daily life where you're out and about in daily life and you see the mind longing and yearning because now you have more concentration and mindfulness, you can see the mind longing and yearning, which is only going to cause 
discontentedness, when you see that craving, then you can cut it off and let it go because you've built that training into your daily life through breathing mindfulness meditation. But if you weren't doing this, you wouldn't be able to train the mind in that way. Therefore, you wouldn't be able to exercise it. You wouldn't be able to control the mind in daily life when you're out and about. And when you see anger getting ready to arise, you wouldn't be able to cut it off. But when you train the mind with breathing mindfulness meditation and all the other steps on the Eightfold Path, then you're able to control the mind. And now as you gain more and more discipline, more and more control of the mind, you can eliminate all discontent feelings because you now have this exercise and this discipline. This loving kindness meditation, meditation to eliminate sexual cravings, and meditation to realize non-self, we're going to address these in the next class in Wednesday. But this class is just to focus on breathing mindfulness meditation. So I was interested to introduce you to that and ensure you understand what you're eliminating and what you're cultivating. This is really important to understand. That gives you the why, and then I'll share with you the how as well. So now looking at the how, this is how you start and conduct a meditation session. The first thing to understand when it comes to training the mind is that the mind is the boss and the body is the employee. What I mean by that is whatever's going on in the mind, the body is going to experience that. So if the mind is stressed or having anxiety, this is why you get pain in the shoulders and the neck because the mind is the boss the body's the employee. The body's just following whatever's going on in the mind. The body can't do anything by itself without the mind. The mind is the boss and the body's just following around whatever the boss decides to do. So if you understand that the mind is the boss and that's the real goal of your meditation is to train the mind, then you understand that the body is the employee. So you need to go through the body in order to get to the mind. What I mean by this is you need to put the body in a comfortable position so that you can get to the boss. Whereas if the body was luxurious, so if the employees are luxurious, they're going to be too lackadaisical to actually take you to go see the boss. You're not going to be able to see the boss if the employees are just sitting around in a lap of luxury. But also, if the employees are painful and experiencing pain, they're not going to be interested in taking you to go see the boss either. So if the body is in a painful position, it's not going to be willing to take you to go see the boss because all the boss is hearing from the employee is pain, 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 pain. So what you would like to do is get this employee, get this body in a position where it's comfortable, not luxurious and not painful. Then it can just be in the middle where there's comfort, not luxurious and not painful. Now when the employee is comfortable, it will take you to go see the boss where now you can actively train the mind. The second thing is the Buddha describes in his teachings when he discusses meditation to set up mindfulness in front of you before you actually meditate. What mindfulness is, is awareness of mind. And he talks about setting this up in front of you. What he means is bring this awareness to the mind prior to meditation. So if you were to just walk in and plop down and start meditating, you haven't brought any awareness to the mind, so you're not going to get as much benefit. But if you came in, you took off your shoes, you made sure your clothes were comfortable, maybe you used the bathroom, empty out the organs, you got a 
place to sit or lay or stand or walk, and you've kind of brought some awareness to the mind prior to actually going into meditation, once you get into meditation, you will kind of have been ahead of the curve, so to speak, because you've already done a little bit of work to bring some awareness to the mind where you're consciously entering into meditation rather than just haphazardly sitting down and attempting to meditate. You've consciously and intentionally moved into meditation. What I do in order to set up mindfulness in front of me is I, yes, I go to the bathroom, make sure all the organs are empty and all these kind of things, take a position that's comfortable, but not luxurious, not painful. But then I do some chanting. There's nothing mystical or magical about chanting, but it helps to start building awareness of mind. It builds concentration. It builds memory. It helps you start develop awareness of the breath. And these are all things that you need in meditation is awareness of the mind, which is mindfulness and awareness of the breath. So there's about two and a half minutes worth of chanting that I do to ease the mind down into meditation. And then I use that to ease the mind out of meditation as well, which will help you feel more comfortable to get deep into your meditation where you don't feel like you need to hold on so that you don't feel this abruptness of now I'm in meditation and now I'm not and just pop in and pop out. That's not what you're interested in. You're interested in easing in, getting all that benefit out of your meditation, and then easing out of meditation. That's really important to help you. And if you like chanting to do that, wonderful. You can use chanting, but it's not required. But you will need to set up mindfulness in front of you. And how you choose to do that is really up to you. Some people might choose to do a little stretching exercises like yoga or something like that. But if you have some kind of activity or some kind of practice that you're using in order to ease the mind down and ease the mind back out of meditation, this will really help you to get more benefit out of the meditation. Then in terms of time, frequency, and schedule, I recommend that you meditate two to three times per day for 30 minutes or more. This is where you'll see the most benefit. But typically, people aren't starting out there. You might start with one session for five minutes a session, or you might start with two sessions a day for 10 or 15 minutes a session. Wherever you start is where you start. Everybody's going to start in a different place. Very rarely does anybody start with two or three for 30 minutes a session. That's very, very rare. So build up to that. So no matter where you start, even if it's one session, five minutes a day, in five minutes a session, then start there and just know that you're working to expand this more and more as you go. I don't suggest that you time your meditations with a alarm. If you set an alarm, one of two things are going to happen. Either you're going to be in meditation and your mind's going to be longing and yearning. Is it time yet? Is it time yet? Is it time yet? And this is what you're trying to counteract. You're trying to get rid of that craving, desire, attachment. But when you set an alarm, the mind oftentimes is yearning and longing to know what time it is. Or you're going to be deep in meditation, getting all kinds of benefit, and then the alarm's going to go off when you could have gotten so much more benefit if you just hadn't set the alarm. So the way that you time your meditation session is you look at the time on the way in. 8 a.m., 9 a.m., 8.30, whatever it is. Then you meditate, and then after you're done, just finish whenever you feel like you're finished, and then look at the time. And if it's 8.15, then you know that you meditated for 15 minutes, and that was a nice check-in. But now, over the course of the next week, work to expand your meditation sessions. And then about once a week, just check in on the time on a meditation session and kind of see where you're at. 
because sometimes it can feel like 15 minutes, but you've been meditating for an hour. And other times it can feel like you've been meditating an hour and it was only 15 minutes. So you'd like to kind of check in about once a week and be sure you're working up to about 30 minutes of meditation per session. And then if you do need an alarm, because in some cases you may need one, if you're on the way to work and you've only got 30 minutes to meditate or you've only got 15 minutes to meditate, you might need to set the alarm if you have some event that you're headed to. So go ahead and do that in those situations. But if you have a weekend or you have evening sessions where you don't need to be anywhere, so maybe, you know, 60, 80% of the time you don't need an alarm so you can just meditate without an alarm the way that I'm suggesting here. And you'll see the most benefits of two to three sessions per day for 30 minutes or more. And you'll need to create more and more space in your life to build up to this. So it may take you six months, a year, two years, who knows? Everybody's going to be different but gradually build up to that. And that's when you'll see the most benefit. In terms of a schedule, I don't recommend that you have a schedule. If you made a schedule where every day I'm gonna meditate at 8 a.m., at 1 p.m., and maybe 8 p.m. in the evening, if you had this set rigid schedule, this is craving permanence. And that's not possible. It's not possible for you to meditate every day at 8 a.m or every day at 1 p.m. or every day at 8 p.m. It's not possible for you to do this. So it's important that you think about it in terms of anchor points. So in the morning you'd like to meditate, in the evening you'd like to meditate, and somewhere in the middle of the day if you can get a meditation session, wonderful. This is what the Buddha did. He meditated three times per day, morning, midday, and evening. And remember, he didn't have a watch or a clock 2,500 years ago to be able to keep track of how long he had meditated for. So if you have these anchor points instead of this fixed, rigid schedule, you'll find that your meditation can be more fluid. Because there's been times where I've woken up and I've been in meditation, maybe three minutes, five minutes in, and my son walks in and says, hey dad, I need you to take me to school. Okay, I'll take you to school. So I take him to school and then I come home and I start my meditation over. Whereas if I had this fixed rigid schedule, I wouldn't be able to do that and I might be discontent in that situation. But by having these anchor points, then you can kind of work towards that goal and realize that once in a while you're gonna miss a morning meditation or once in a while you're gonna miss an evening meditation or something like this. And this is completely normal and common. If you are sleepy during your meditation sessions, this is normal, it's very common, particularly when you first start because there's a lot of pollution in the mind and you can feel some sleepiness come in. You have a couple of options here. One is you can just get some sleep. This can be that the mind is not sleeping very well. Now that it's doing this work in meditation, it can become sleepy and you might just decide to go to sleep. That's completely fine. As you work through your practice and you develop your practice, eradicating more and more of this pollution, you'll kind of get over the hump with that where you'll see that you won't be as sleepy so much. The other option you can do is you can actually switch to a standing position or a walking position if you notice that there's sleepiness coming into the mind. So that's the way you can solve that. If you notice physical sensations during your meditation, like there's itching on the skin or there's tingling different places or things like this, this is completely normal also. 
And what you would like to do is try to train the mind that these things are impermanent. That if you feel a little itch arise, just try to stick with the breath and ignore it. Try to cut that off and let it go. But if you absolutely have to scratch, go ahead and scratch, right? But then try to expand the amount of time that it's taking you to do that. So if initially you observe the scratch or the itch and it takes you five minutes and then eventually you need to itch it, okay, next time try to make it eight seconds or 10 seconds or 15 seconds and gradually expand it wider and wider and wider where you can observe that this itch arises, it changes, and it fades away because it's impermanent and you don't crave permanent comfort of the body. So that is the way that you can do that. And you may even be in situations where there's an insect crawling around on your head like a fly or there's a mosquito coming around. These things can help you to focus on the breath and ignore those things and realize that these things are just impermanent. They're not bothering you. You're not harming these beings, these insects. You're not harming them. So they're not going to harm you. So you can just focus on the breath and not be concerned about this, including if you hear sounds or things like this. And if you feel tingling or numbness in the body, as long as it's not because of pain or lack of circulation, this is completely normal. Sometimes people, as they're getting closer and closer to realizing non-self, as you're in meditation, you might feel like the body doesn't even exist. Sometimes people even feel like they're kind of outside of the body, kind of looking at themselves, meditate. This is pretty normal as well. So you can just understand that it's normal and not feel like you need to take any particular action unless the body is having trouble with circulation and you need to adjust the body for any particular reason. If you experience visual stimulation during the meditation, meaning that you see green or you see purple or you see white or you see different scenes playing out in the mind, then you would like to just cut this off, let it go and come back to the breath. These are very normal in meditation because as you're training the mind, the physical brain is actually changing. The Buddha didn't describe this during his lifetime because they had no ability to discover this during their lifetime. But we have the ability to see this today through researchers, scientists, doctors, and so forth, studying people who have been meditating for long-term periods of time. They can see that the physical structures of the brain have actually changed through this meditation training and through training the mind, the structures of the brain have changed. You may even hear the structures of the brain moving around as you're actually meditating at different times. This is all very helpful. It's helping the brain to function better because you're training the mind and helping the mind function better. The brain is being affected in a positive way too. And sight is dependent on the brain. So that's why that as the changes are happening, as you're training the mind and the brain is changing, you'll see the different colors sometimes and see different imagery that's happening because the brain is involved in the sight. So you're not special. You haven't been touched by the hand of anything. You don't allow that conceit or ego to come up that thinks that you have to figure out what does this green color mean? What does this purple color mean? Does it mean I'm special or Am I going to get rich now that I see these green colors in my meditation? You know, don't allow the mind to go down that path. Just know that it's normal. 
cut it off, let it go, and just keep coming back to the breath and keep coming back to the breath. The mind and the brain is very powerful and you'll oftentimes see these kind of things happening, but then eventually you'll get over all of that where the brain has done all the changes that it needs and you won't have those experiences any longer. But there'll be periods of time where those things are occurring. Then in terms of meditation with external stimulus, this is like if you're using music or incense or candles, and if you have these kind of things going on or beads or different things like this, sometimes people teach to meditate with these things. I don't recommend it. All you should need to meditate are three things, the body, the mind, and the breath. You'll have these three things with you all the time for the rest of this life, the body, the mind, and the breath. So if you can strip your meditation practice down to just body, mind, and breath, it doesn't matter where you are in the world, you'll always be able to meditate. Even if you're deep in the mountains in Thailand somewhere on a three, four, five, ten 10-day journey, you don't need to have that special candle or that special music or that special incense with you. You can meditate anywhere at any time, body, mind, and breath. And I would suggest you build up your practice to 80 or 90% of the time that you're meditating with just the body, just the mind, and just the breath. But if 10 or 20% of the time you'd like to go to a group meditation or a gong meditation, or you'd like to try a little bit of incense or candles or things like this, you can. But what you're interested in doing is not allowing the mind to crave these things long for these things, yearn for these things, be attached to them. Instead, you're interested in stripping down your practice so that your mind isn't dependent on these things. As long as your mind is dependent on these things like music and other things, then there's still craving, desire, attachment in the mind. So if you can strip your practice down to body, mind, and breath, you can meditate anywhere at any time. And this is what I would suggest the type of practice that you build up. So let me see what questions you guys have. Again, you can put that into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, or in Zoom, you can electronically raise your hand and ask any questions that you like. Thank you, sir. On YouTube, Daniel asks, can I enter jhanas through breathing mindfulness meditation? So the jhanas are preliminary phases that the mind goes through before it gets to the first stage of enlightenment. And then there's four stages of enlightenment. A lot of times people think that the jhanas are just experienced only in meditation, but a jhana is something that is a phase that the mind goes through and the qualities of the jhana, you're actually experiencing at all times during your day. The way that you get to the jhanas is yes, you would need meditation, but it's actually all the other teachings on the Eightfold Path that will help you get to the jhanas as well. You would need to have developed right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. And having put together all of those, then you'll actually experience the jhanas not just in meditation, but you experience these qualities of mind outside of meditation as well. Yes, thank you, sir. It does not appear that there are any other questions at this time. Okay, well, the last thing I'll share with you before we actually do meditation together as a group is to never give up on your meditation practice. No matter what challenges or struggles or difficulties you might encounter, reach out for help from a member of our community or from me. I'm more than pleased to help you. But if you meet a certain struggle or you meet a certain challenge and you give up, it's like turning away 
And now by walking away from that challenge, you don't cultivate the wisdom that you need to overcome that obstacle. As long as you are in a pattern of walking away from challenges and walking away from the struggles that you might encounter, then you're not able to cultivate the wisdom and overcome that. So by walking towards the challenge and facing it, now you can overcome it through cultivating the wisdom that you need. So if you're ever struggling or you're ever having difficulties, that's just because you haven't cultivated the wisdom that you need in that particular situation. So rather than walk away or run away or shrink back from the struggle, instead turn around and walk towards the struggle. And the way you walk towards it is you reach out to your teacher or somebody to get some help. And then when you cultivate the wisdom that you need, you can overcome this challenge. Because if you give up on your meditation practice, it's basically like going back to anger, going to frustration and saying, okay, I relent. I'm just always going to be angry. I'm just always going to be frustrated. And you've kind of given in now that the mind is complacent. If you are complacent, as the Buddha says, you're going to regret it later. So if you don't meet the struggle, if you don't go forward and meet those challenges and difficulties, then you're just giving in and you're saying, okay, you know, I'm just submitting. I'm going to accept this human condition that I'm always going to be angry and I'm not going to apply any effort to be able to overcome this. Now, if you go away from meditation for a few days or a week or so and you need to take a little break, that's understandable, but be sure you get right back into it. You don't allow that to become three weeks or three months or three years. This is where the condition of the mind is going to be degraded because until you get to that first stage of enlightenment, anything that you experience along the path, including the jhanas, the mind can regress out of that. So if you've done all this work for six months, a year, two years, three years, and your mind's starting to experience the jhanas and you give up, your mind's going to regress out of that. But if you keep going, even meeting those struggles and challenges, and you get to that first stage of enlightenment and beyond, your mind won't regress from there. So you're not interested in giving up. You might take a pause here and there. You might choose not to meditate on a particular evening or something like that if you're really tired and you're getting back late to home and you just need to get some sleep for tomorrow morning. Your meditation and your willingness to meditate for a consistent long-term period of time is what's going to determine if you get to enlightenment or not. If you miss meditation for one night, that's not going to determine whether you actually get to enlightenment or not. So you're going to miss meditation here or there. You're going to choose to not meditate here and there. But what's going to decide whether you get to enlightenment or not is over a three-year period, six-year period, eight-year period, are you willing to be dedicated and determined and diligent to consistently put together a meditation practice where you know you're going to miss occasionally here and there, but you stay dedicated to it over the long term? That's what's going to determine if you get to enlightenment or not, not whether or not you miss your meditation this morning or tomorrow or something like that. So this is everything that I was going to share with you guys before we actually go into our guided meditation today to actually practice breathing mindfulness meditation. Are there any questions before we switch over and start meditating? Um, it doesn't appear that we have any questions at this time, sir. All right. So let me start with just helping you get into a comfortable position and then I will guide you through my voice in order to help you do the actual work with the mind. 
So the first thing you'd like to do is get the body into a comfortable position. Here, if you're sitting on the floor, you might put a cushion under your rear and you might cross your legs in front of you. If you put your rear up in the air, this lessens the angles at your hips, your knees, and your ankles. And you should just have your legs lightly crossed so that your circulation isn't inhibited. Your hands and your arms should rest comfortably in your lap. The Buddha put his right hand on top of his left with his thumbs together, and then he put that into his lap. If that's comfortable for you, do that. But there's other options here as well. You could put your palms on your thighs, on your knees, your palms up. These are all options because there's not just one fixed way to position the body. You would like the body to be comfortable, not luxurious and not painful. If you're in a chair, you would just like the lower body to be comfortable. Maybe you have your feet crossed at the ankles or maybe flat on the floor. All of those are options that you can use. And then the hands and arms, same thing, resting comfortably in your lap. And then with the upper body, you would like the upper body to be erect. This keeps the mind attentive and alert during your meditation session. Whereas if you were slouched, the mind would have a tendency to be complacent. Or if you were really rigid and upright, this would produce kind of stress or anxiety, being uptight in the mind. So you would like the body to be, in terms of the upper body, you would like the upper body to be erect but not real rigid and not slouched. So by being in the middle where the body is erect, this will keep the mind attentive and alert because the body is comfortable and it's attentive, it's erect. Next, with your body in this position, just close the eyes and start breathing in through the nose and out through the nose. Here, what you're doing is you're just working to establish the breath. You're breathing in gradually through the nose, experiencing the full breath. And then whenever you get to it, you breathe out gradually through the nose. You can hang out here with the breath and I'll be back with some more guidance or you can join along in these chants. If you know these chants, you're welcome to join. If you don't know them yet, I'll teach them at another time for you to, to learn them. Or you can watch the videos that I've taught that in the past. So after I do chanting, I'll come back and help you further in meditation. Sang Kang Namah. 
should be breathing in through the nose and out through the nose. Your breath isn't going to necessarily match up with the guidance I'm providing because this is your practice. I'm here just to guide you and to remind you to breathe in through the nose, experiencing the full breath. And whenever you get to it, breathe out through the nose, exhaling gradually, experiencing the full exhale. Breathing in. And out. Breathing in and out. With the breath well established, start fixating the mind on the sound of the breath or the sensation of air moving into the nose. The breath is the present moment. Fixate the mind on the breath, the present moment. Breathing in and out. Breathing in in out. 
with the mind fixated on the breath. Whenever you observe that the mind is off the breath, cut that off, let it go, and come back to the breath, the present moment. There's no need to judge the thought. There's no need to analyze it or try to figure out where it's coming from. No need to observe it or label it. Instead, just wherever you observe that the mind is off the breath, Cut that off, let it go, and come back to the breath, the present moment. Breathing in. And out. Breathing in. in out I'm going to be quiet now and let you do this work of focusing on the breath cutting off and letting go any time the mind moves off the breath you have nowhere to go there's nothing to do No one needs you right now. This is your time to focus on the breath. Breathing in and out.
to slowly make your way out of meditation. As you guys make your way out of meditation, I'm going to open up to questions that you might have, but I would just like to remind you that this meditation isn't to eliminate thoughts. It's not possible for you to eliminate thoughts as part of any aspect of this life. That if you're meditating and you think that the goal is to eliminate thoughts, when you have thoughts, you might experience discontentedness. But understand that even when the mind's enlightened, you'll still have thoughts. Because the mind will get more quiet, more still, more peaceful, more joyful. All of these enlightened qualities will arise in the mind, but you're still going to have the occasional thought as an enlightened being. And when you observe that, though, as an enlightened being, you'll see it readily, you'll see it rather quickly and you'll be able to easily cut it off and bring the mind back to the breath 
But as you're progressing towards that, you'll have varying degrees of thoughts as you're going through your meditation. But those periods of time when you don't have thoughts, they'll get wider and wider, but you'll still have an occasional thought. And in those gaps, you'll have this peacefulness, this stillness, this quietness, and this joy that's there in the mind. So don't think that the goal is to actually eliminate thoughts because then every time you have a thought, you might be experiencing discontentedness, thinking that that's something wrong with that. Even if you're in meditation and the mind is really peaceful and you're thinking, oh my goodness, the mind is so peaceful, that's still a thought. Or if you're having meditation and there's a period of time where there aren't thoughts and you're like, wow, there's no thoughts. Well, that's a thought, right? So anybody who comes out of meditation and says, I've eliminated thoughts. Well, how did you know that you eliminated thoughts? You would have to have had a thought in order to know that you eliminated thoughts. So it's not possible to eliminate thoughts as long as you're alive. In meditation, you're cutting off all thoughts, right? You're cutting off and letting go all thoughts. But in daily life, you're only cutting off and letting go of unwholesome thoughts. So as you learn about what is wholesome and what is unwholesome, when you observe unwholesomeness arising in the mind as part of your daily life, you cut that off. But if you have a wholesome thought in daily life, then you can allow that to occur and continue forward. So the way that you exercise the mind in meditation by cutting off all thoughts isn't the same thing that you do in daily life. This is just like a professional athlete. They train in the gym in one way, and then they perform their sport in a different way. So it's the same thing, that you're training in meditation to cut off all thoughts and let them go, bringing the mind back to the breath so that you can develop this control and this discipline of the mind, eliminating craving, desire, attachment, while arising mindfulness and concentration. But in daily life, with that mindfulness and concentration, and now this discipline and control of the mind, whenever you observe that there's an unwholesome thought coming up in the mind, you cut that off and let it go. So I'll just turn things over to all of you so that you can ask any remaining questions that you have. You can put that into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, or you can electronically raise your hand in Zoom. Yes, thank you, sir. I see Tony has his hand raised. Let's go to him first question. Thank you, Miranda. Yes, Teacher David, uh, so in keeping the mind focused on, on the breath, uh, on, on the, the noise or the, the, the feeling of the, at the nostrils, uh, so if, you follow the, if, I, if I follow the breath in and out, that's not doing it correctly, I should be more concentrating just on one, one particular uh, point. So if you're hearing the breath come into the nose, and you're hearing it leave, that's what you would like to focus the mind on is that sound. Or if you're feeling the sensation of air, like over the skin going into the nose, you can focus the mind on that sensation. Those are the ways to focus the mind on the breath. Okay, so if I'm following my breath in and then following it out, that's not uh, prop the proper uh, practice, the proper teaching you mean like the physical body like the lungs expanding and, and sinking no I, I guess my mind is following it in but it must be my mind that's following the lung yeah my mind's following it in and following it out staying on the breath but following it in following it out not and, and then sometimes it's right on the on uh, the, the sound or the the feeling yeah if it's on the sound or the, the sensation that's what you would like to focus it on okay 
Okay. Now I noticed another question. I noticed that in your uh, when you're starting us off and you're you're doing the uh, breathe in and then breathe out. I'm having difficulty taking those because then I, my mind goes right to the to the uh, to the to the feeling of the breath coming in and then the breath going out. Uh, but if I if I just just slow that down, and and, and and then I can stay right on the point of either the sound or the or the sensation. So is it is there is it uh, suggested that you have deep breaths or or it's whatever whatever I would be comfortable with. Whatever you're comfortable with. The Buddha shares that if you're breathing short, know that you're breathing short. If you're breathing long, know okay. that you're breathing long. So what he's saying is bring your awareness to your breath. What you'll notice if you take some nice deeper breaths, you know, you can really fully breathe in and fully breathe out. But if you have a shorter breath, that's fine. What I noticed is when I had a shorter breath, the mind was a bit active because the, the breath was like, you know, it was, a, it was kind okay. of shorter. So I kind of really worked outside of meditation. Sometimes I just sat there and I just kind of worked on the breath. I wasn't trying to focus the mind on the breath. I just, even with my eyes open, I just paid attention to the breath, getting used to breathing in real gradually in the nose and breathing out really gradually. And then after having done those exercises outside of meditation, then I combined it together in the meditation with the mind fixated on the breath. Excellent. Thank you, Teacher David. Mm -hmm. You're welcome. It does not appear that there are any other questions at this time, sir. Okay. All right. Well, thank you all for joining for today's class. As I mentioned, next week on Wednesday, I'm going to be doing the same thing with loving kindness meditation, just thoroughly going through to remind you, or if you're joining for the first time, you'll get a chance to learn from the very beginning of what loving kindness meditation is and how to do it and why we're doing it, which is so important. So I'll be doing that on Wednesday. This Sunday, we're going to be continuing with our retreat series, Harmony and Relationships. And we're going to be teaching a class on sharing the path to enlightenment, guiding children on this path. So here I'm going to teach you how to guide children along the path to enlightenment, whether they're your children or grandchildren or nieces or nephews. This will actually help you not only with children, but it'll help you with other people in your life too, because sometimes there's ways to skillfully guide our life partner or other friends or coworkers around us. Not that they're going to be able to get to enlightenment that way. They would need to actively be on the path to get to enlightenment. But you can kind of help people along skillfully without necessarily actively teaching them. There's ways that you can actually help people along. Again, they would have to actively practice the path and learning it in order to practice it. But there's skillful things you can do with children and other people in your life that will help guide them along the path a little bit. So I'm going to be sharing that with you next week as part of our class on this Sunday. So thank you all for joining for today's class. I really appreciate all the questions and all the dedication and diligence to learning these teachings. We'll see you guys in a future class. Have a very lovely and wonderful rest of your day. Sawadikhap. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment.
Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.